Well, welcome and congratulations to making it through. Uh, this will be the last class uh, for Christian Belief One, and then Trace will teach in March, separate class, and then we'll pick up Christian Belief Two in the fall. Um, I promised, well, I shouldn't say that, but I'm going to try my best to uh, be done in time for questions. I know the past two weeks I've left no time for some questions, so we'll just jump in and get started. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather and reflect on your greatness, specifically the greatness of your son and what he has done for us. We're incredibly grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to talk about the doctrine of God the Son. And the big idea is that Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God, fully man, who has saved us from our sins. And the application is a question. Is my life fully surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? So let's take up Jesus' question with Matthew. Here, here's an outline for you. Um, we'll start with the person of the Son. Then we'll talk about Jesus' threefold office. What are the roles that Jesus uh, assumes in his work? And then the third thing we'll discuss is the work of Christ, and we'll focus on the atonement. What did Jesus' death accomplish for us? So, with the person of the Son, we'll take up Matthew's question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? So, I'll ask you, and you can, you can shout them out, but who do people say that Jesus is? And as you think about various answers, think of how a Muslim, how a Jew, or an atheist, or somebody from the Universalist church next door, how would they answer that question? Who is Jesus? A prophet? Good man, good teacher. Any others? Didn't really exist. Didn't exist. Maybe an insurrectionist. Maybe that's how Roman citizens would have thought of him. A troublemaker. Who do you say Jesus is? He's Lord. What did you say? Son of God, Messiah, Redeemer. our Redeemer, Christ. Christ. He's our Savior. Yeah, he's our high priest. He's a good father. He's our Lord and Savior. 
He's fully God, fully man. Jesus is a singularity in human history. And it really is impossible to think about the history of the world, especially Western civilization, apart from the particular person of Jesus. So the world has to decide what to do with Jesus. What do you do with him? And I remain convinced by C.S. Lewis's famous argument of liar, lunatic, or Lord. So I know some of you are familiar with this. Uh, But in this argument, Lewis says that Jesus didn't give us the option of thinking of himself as a good moral teacher. And Jesus' disciples didn't come away with that conclusion either, or that he was merely a good moral teacher. Uh, Many people in the Gospels either respond with hatred and contempt or worship, awe and reverence. So Jesus is this polarizing figure in the New Testament. And here's Lewis's famous argument. I'll read a quote from Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either he, this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then Lewis says, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So convinced as I am, and I'm sure you are, of Lewis's argument that Jesus must be Lord and Son of God, let's explore that title, Son of God. The Son of God is a title that uniquely demonstrates Jesus's relation to the Father. It's a title that discloses his identity. So throughout all the references to Jesus as the Son, really we have the building blocks to our theology of the Trinity. Jesus is the Son of the Father. All throughout the Gospels, we see the Father-Son relationship in Jesus' works. So think of a passage like uh, John 5, 17, Jesus is talking about his works, and he says, the works that I do are the Father's. The Father is working until now, and I am working. And so the implication is that Jesus' works are equal, in essence, to the Father's works. We can also think of Jesus in the temple as a boy. In Luke 2, 
41 through 49. So Jesus stays behind. His parents find him in the temple after he was missing for a day. And Jesus responds to his parents and he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or a real literal translation would say, did you not know that I must be in the things of the father? That I must be about the father's business? So from very early on, Jesus has self-awareness of his identity as the divine son of God. So by virtue of who he is, Jesus has been the son of God from eternity. There was never a point in time when Jesus became the son of God in terms of his identity. He eternally exists as the son. Now, Jesus liked to use another title for himself and he would refer to himself as son of man. And this comes from Daniel chapter seven. Uh, Daniel seven thirteen through 14. And this is a passage that refers to this glorious heavenly being who will appear in the future as a ruler over an eternal kingdom. And he is a son of man who will bring reconciliation between God and man who acts as a representative for other sons of humanity, other sons of men. That's us. So the the son of man and son of God titles really reflect Jesus's humanity as son of man. He is truly human and son of God, his full divinity. He is truly divine. Last week, in our short and sweet doctrine of the Trinity, we talked about the eternal generation of the Son. So I'll just review some of the concepts here. So the church has historically affirmed what's known as the eternal generation of the Son. And as I said, it's kind of strange. It sounds strange to us, it's mysterious. How is the Son eternally born? of the Father, but really what this is getting at is is it's saying that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is equal with the Father and the Spirit, and they are equal in their glory, they are co-eternal in their majesty, and so the Son has eternally existed as the Son because he, he is of the same thing, the same substance or essence as the Father. So the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh, that did not mark the beginning of the Son's existence. It marks the beginning of Jesus assuming a human nature, adding a human nature to his person. But he has eternally existed as the Son. And what this also means, if you recall the triangle with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, this affirms the equality of the persons of the Trinity. So the Son is not subordinate or inferior to the Father. But because of the Son's eternal relationship with the Father, 
He is eternally characterized by his sonship. And uh, this might sound really speculative or philosophical, um, but it matters a great deal. And I think that the Bible does affirm the eternal generation of the Son in passages like uh, some feedback there. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 affirms the pre existence of the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it is through the Son that the world was created, Colossians 1.16. All things were created through him and for him. So the Son had to eternally exist to create the world. All things are created through him and for him. Uh, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is eternally the image of God. Philippians 2.6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. And I take that to mean that he was eternally existent, sharing the same essence as God. So he eternally shares in the godness of God. And so why does the eternal generation of the Son matter? Well, it matters because if the Son is not eternally the Son, then the Father is not eternally the Father. So the whole essence, all the godness of God, the Father, is communicated to the Son. So the Son is fully God, not partly God. Here's the language from the Nicene Creed. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. That's eternal generation. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. So he is eternally the Son, but he is not a created being. He's eternally existed of the same essence as the Father. So the church has historically affirmed the eternal generation. Scripture also affirms the deity of the Son. Scripture affirms the full deity of Jesus. Colossians 2.9, Paul says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God's godness exists in Jesus. So two weeks ago, we talked about the attributes of God. All of those attributes may be ascribed to Jesus. And in this Colossians passage, the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Notice Paul says the whole fullness. That's not the same thing as a whole bunch of the deity dwells in Christ. That's different. Paul says the whole fullness, not a whole bunch of. 
So completely, he is fully divine. All of the attributes are true of Jesus. Jesus embodies God's love. Romans 8, 35. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is righteous and holy. Acts 3.14 speaks of those who denied the holy and righteous one. Uh, Revelation 6.16 speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. And that's clear, that's an allusion to Jesus. Jesus, in a passage we're all familiar with, John 14.6, speaks of himself as the way and the truth. So the attribute of God's truthfulness is fully found in Jesus. He embodies the full revelation of God to man. So those are God's communicable attributes. Um, We can also speak of the incommunicable attributes are true of Jesus as well. So God's aseity, God has life in himself. He's independent and free. And in John 5.26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So that would be a passage that affirms Jesus also has aseity. And the New Testament is full of passages that speak of Christ sitting on the throne. Uh, And so the one who sits on the throne of God must be equal with God. The Old Testament prohibits the worship of false gods. Exodus 20, verse 3, 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And worship was reserved for the one true God. And as you look at the New Testament, Jesus never rebukes his disciples when he receives their worship. So Matthew 14, 33, uh, of his disciples, it says, those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Or Matthew 21, uh, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? So, If you contrast those two passages, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders. He He does not rebuke the disciples for worshiping him. He doesn't stop them from worshiping him. And he actually acknowledges that they're right to worship him. Who he condemns is the chief priests. They're the ones who are wrong. So we can look at Jesus' works, his miracles, his teaching with authority. He has power to forgive sins. 
No one can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus inaugurates his kingdom. Nobody but God can bring the kingdom. And then we talked about the title Christ. Jesus bears the title Messiah. This is a divine title. It means anointed one or savior. The New Testament writers speak of Jesus as Lord. And if you notice in your Bible, usually um, if the New Testament is citing a passage in the Old Testament, it'll use Lord as all caps. And that's a way of um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word Lord in Greek would be a substitute for Yahweh in the Old Testament. So when it's in all caps, um, it's a Greek translation of a substitute for the divine identity. So sometimes Jesus is referred to explicitly as God. Um, There are seven New Testament references where Jesus is referred to as God explicitly. I'll just list a few. Uh, Romans 9.5. It says, Christ, who who is God over all, blessed forever. Uh, 2 Peter 1 1 speaks of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we compile all of those passages together, we have a very strong case biblically that Jesus is fully God. And just as we affirm the full divinity, we also affirm the full humanity of Christ. He was truly God and truly human. Jesus assumed or took on a true human nature. In the incarnation, he took on flesh. So the passage, two passages here that are important for us, John 1.14 and Philippians chapter 2. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, though he was fully God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So, as I said, you have a, what's called a form of God and form of a servant in this Philippians passage. Form of God, form of servant. As existing in the form of God, he shares the same essence as God. And in that passage, when it says, Jesus emptied himself, it shouldn't be understood as God was emptying his divine attributes when he took on flesh. But rather, it's really about the addition of a human nature. 
So when we think about the incarnation, we shouldn't think about it as subtraction. We should think about it in terms of addition. Nothing is being subtracted from God's essence, but God is assuming or adding to himself a human nature. As I said, the divine person of the Son has eternally existed. The Son was not created at the incarnation, but rather 2,000 years ago, the Son took on a human nature. And now, the person of the Son eternally exists as the embodied, enfleshed, divine Son of God. So his human nature was a genuine human nature. So think about all the aspects of human nature we discussed last week. Those would be true of Jesus. Physical, mental, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, moral. All of those aspects of human nature are true of Jesus. Jesus had, as fully human... He had a body and soul. So human nature has two aspects, material and immaterial. We are body-soul unities. So Jesus didn't take on a pre-existing body. He was born just like you and me. And though his conception was miraculous, he developed in the womb, and he grew and he developed like any other human being. Luke 2.40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Jesus was born as an infant. He underwent all the stages of human development, He goes from infant to toddler to terrible twos to childhood to adolescence. Jesus went through puberty. He grew armpit hair. His voice deepened. He develops into adulthood. And if that makes us uncomfortable, then we should ask, why? Why does that sound so strange to us? So what's the point of the connection between Jesus' embodiment and ours. He can sympathize with our weakness. He experienced hunger pangs, uh, tiredness, exhaustion, spring fever maybe, muscle soreness, sickness, common colds. He was a carpenter. He probably knew what it was like to throw out his back, smash his thumb with a hammer. Jesus also had a human mind and will. He had a human soul. He experienced the full range of human emotions. Jesus is full of compassion and pity and love. He became distressed even to the point of sweating blood in the garden. There's a real but rare medical condition that's a response to severe distress or trauma. Jesus became angry 
Think of John chapter 11 with Lazarus in the tomb. He became annoyed. That's a fun one. Uh, Mark 10, 14, Jesus became annoyed. Um, It says, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. They were preventing the children from coming to him. It said, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And really, the context is he was annoyed. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Now, it's really interesting to think about Jesus' growth and human knowledge and wisdom while at the same time possessing the divine attribute of omniscience. How could God be all-knowing and he grows and develops as a boy, he grows in wisdom and knowledge. Now, the Gospels do portray Jesus as having exceptional, extraordinary knowledge in certain circumstances. He could perceive the thoughts of others. He knows what the disciples are thinking, what they want to ask him. He knew who would betray him. He knew that Lazarus had died before he arrived. Um, People in the temple were amazed at his learning as a 12-year-old boy. But then at the same time, it says Jesus didn't know the hour of his return. So Matthew uh, 24, 36. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So Jesus has a human mind. Um, In the instances where Jesus exhibits extraordinary knowledge, we can think of it I think, is Jesus being filled with the Spirit. The Father, through the Spirit, is revealing that knowledge to Jesus. Uh, But certain things the Father had chose not to reveal to him, such as the hour of his return. Elsewhere, Jesus says the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord. He only does and sees what the Father is doing. He speaks what the Father speaks. This is John chapter 5. So that, that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't omniscient. I think we can say Jesus had omniscience. At times, his knowledge is limited. But that's consistent with saying he has the divine attribute of omniscience. So D.A. Carson uses an example, and he puts it like this. He said, you know, when we think of Jesus' temptation in the, uh, in the desert, in the wilderness, uh, Jesus had power. He was omnipotent. Uh, he had power to turn the stones into bread if he wanted, but he wasn't going to use his power in such a way that would detract from his mission. And so in that context, Jesus is identifying with our humanity with our weakness and facing temptation. So Jesus limits his power, though he has power to turn those stones to bread. Um, Later on, though, he will demonstrate his power by multiplying the loaves and the fishes, or the fish. But um, in that case, Jesus isn't using that power for himself. He's using it as a sign to draw those people to himself. 
So Jesus and God, he can limit um, certain attributes, but a limitation doesn't mean that um, that attribute is absent. So we can say Jesus is omniscient, though in certain circumstances he has limited knowledge. So why did the Son of God become incarnate? What is the purpose of the incarnation, in other words? Well, in order to save us from sin, in order to save us from suffering, from Satan, from death, he had to become incarnate. So Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he takes on human flesh. He becomes a representative man. He is the faithful Adam who will reverse the curse resulting from the failure of the first Adam. So Jesus acts as our faithful representative. And to truly represent fallen humanity, he had to assume a true human nature. He is faithful where we have failed. He pays the penalty for our sin as our substitute. He experienced temptation like we do, yet remained without sin. He is fully human. So Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And now we got to think through how do those relate? And this is known as the hypostatic union. This comes from a Greek word that means person. So how are the two natures united in one person? That's what this is about. Two natures, fully God, fully man, united in one person. So we affirm that Jesus is fully God, fully human. How do these realities relate? Michael Bird is a theologian and he says the hypostatic union rules out a number of responses. So basically he says, it's not as if you put the two natures of Jesus into a blender and you mix them all up. Uh, it's not as if Jesus's human soul was replaced by his divine person. And it's not compartmentalized like oil and water in a jar and they're kind of separate entities, rather, the hypostatic union will say these two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, are united into one person, the Son. The statement that affirms this doctrine is known as the Chalcedonian Creed. 
This was decided at Chalcedon in the year 451. Let me read you some of the language from the creed. It says, our Lord Jesus Christ is both complete in divinity and complete in humanity, truly God, truly man, consisting of a rational soul and body. He is of one substance with the Father as, regard, as regards his Godhead, at the same time of one substance with us as regards humanity. He is like us in all respects apart from sin. And then here's the key, as it says that he is recognized in two natures, and there's four pieces here, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So these are two natures united in one person without confusion, without them blending into each other, uh, without division like oil and water or separation. So this is not a perfect analogy, but the closest analogy would be to think about our body and soul. It's inextricably and inexplicably united. There are two aspects of human nature, body and soul, united into one thing. Um, so we can think of Christ's two natures, fully God, a divine nature, a human nature, united into one person, inseparably, without confusion, without change, without division. So I'm going to go into some errors That statement, the Chalcedonian Creed, was written to respond to a number of errors. And the first is known as docetism. And this view denies the full humanity of Christ. Docetism means to appear or to seem. So Jesus only appeared to be truly human. I think it was Matt earlier who said um, that he, doesn't, he didn't actually exist, that he, he just appeared to have existed. So docetism said Jesus was really a spiritual being who just appeared to be fully human. Um, a form of this, one of my... Uh, Muslim friends in China I was talking to said um, it wasn't actually Jesus who died on the cross. God rescued Jesus and put somebody else on the cross who just appeared to be Jesus. Because if, if Jesus was his prophet, God loves his prophet, God wouldn't let his prophet suffer. So uh, the person who actually was crucified just appeared to be Jesus, but he wasn't actually Jesus. That's kind of a form of docetism. Um, I've talked before about Gnostics. They were an ancient heretical group who prioritized 
the spiritual over the physical. And so basically they said the son had to be a spiritual being because um, if he took on flesh, flesh is bad, flesh is wicked and evil. Um, so he couldn't f- be truly God if he, if he was enfleshed. Um, but First John explicitly rules this out. So First John 4, 1 through 3 says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Um, and so as you read 1 John, 2 John, it's full of language that emphasizes we have seen with our eyes, uh, we have heard with our ears, we saw him in the flesh. So this is reacting against docetism, that Jesus merely appeared to be a man. Last week, we talked about Arianism. Arius was a bishop um, who denied the full deity of Jesus. He said that Jesus was a created being. Arianism denies the eternal generation of the Son. And it says that the Son is of a different nature than the Father. So, Arius would say the word is heterousios, of a different substance than the Father, but the creed affirmed that Jesus was homousios, meaning of the same substance as the Father. He was equal to the Father. So, the Council of Nicaea rejects Arianism. Arianism won the day for 50 years. A majority of the early church um, remained convinced by Arius. Um, But ultimately, um, those councils refute him. Jesus was true God from true God. And as I discussed last week, modern forms of Arianism would be Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Mormon Church, Unitarians. Another view is known as Apollinarianism. Apollinarius was a bishop, and he denied the full humanity of the Son, Um, But he did it a little differently than the docetists. Um, He said that Jesus did not take on a true human nature. He only took on flesh. So he didn't take on a human body and soul. He only took on a body. Um, And so in other words, Jesus didn't have a human mind or a human will. Um, and the church rejects Apollinarianism because it says that Christ can't function as our representative if he is not truly human and having a true human nature, body and soul. Um, 
modern forms of Apollinarianism, William Lane Craig. Here's the thing about Craig. I like a lot of what Craig says, and then some things Craig says, not so much. <laughs> but Craig has a view called Neo-Apollinarianism. Um, but I always think it's a dangerous thing when you try to rehabilitate a heretical view. Um, anyway, um, the creed affirmed that Jesus took on a human soul and body. He is like us in all respects. He is truly human, body and soul. How do you like these baby names? Nestorius, Apollinarius, Arius. Nestorius was another bishop. And um, instead of, so the hypostatic union says there are two natures in one person. Nestorius, or Nestorianism, says that there are two persons in one nature. So, or two persons working in collaboration with each other. So Nestorius, there's debate whether or not he actually held to this view. He denies that he actually taught this. But this, the view is associated with his name. Um, but the big, the big thing to think about with Nestorianism is that uh, we have to think about Christ's nature without division and without separation. Um, so there, there's only two natures united in one person. There are not two different persons of the Son. Another view, Eutyches. Eutychianism. Basically, Eutyches blends. He's the blender view. Um, the two natures become merged together, so much so that it becomes not two natures, but a third kind of nature. Um, I always have a soft spot in my heart for Eutyches because he gets branded as a heretic, but then he gets reinstated later. <laughs> I said, okay, you're not heretical. I think he was just a bad theologian. And so, which gives us some insight into um, just the early church. And they were really working through the biblical text. They were trying to wrestle with, what do we say about Jesus? How do we reconcile this? Uh, they didn't have this all figured out. They didn't have um, historical precedent to go back to. Um, so we benefit from their labor. A modern heretical view is known as canoticism, and this comes from a word in that Philippians 2 passage about Jesus emptying himself. Um, kenosis is the word. He emptied himself. So canoticism uh, denies the full deity of the Son, 
It takes the emptied himself to maintain that uh, the son emptied himself of certain divine attributes. Usually attributes like omniscience, omnipotence, things like that. Um, but as I said, I think we can hold those attributes in place in light of the incarnation, even though uh, it presents challenges to think through. Um, and canonic forms of Christology um, view the incarnation as subtraction. But as I said, I think it's better to think about the incarnation as addition, not subtraction. Jesus assumes a human nature. We'll move on to uh, the threefold office of Christ. So after thinking about the person of Jesus, who is Jesus, we can think about uh, his work. What did he come to do? What did he accomplish? And the three offices of Christ help us think through Christ's work of salvation. There are three different offices that Christ holds as he works salvation for us. And that is prophet, priest, and king. And uh, this is known as probably the coolest theological Latin term ever. The munis triplex, the threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. So we often think about Christ's work primarily in terms of his substitutionary atonement and his resurrection, and that's true, but it's not limited to that. And so the threefold office emphasizes the multifaceted nature of Christ's work of salvation. And the biblical basis for thinking about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king is found in the Old Testament, different offices in Israel, and Jesus is the fulfillment of these different offices. Um, all of these offices are summed up into one person, um, Jesus. He joins all these offices together in his person. So we'll start with just a brief survey over these offices. So prophet, um, prophets spoke through the Holy Spirit as God directed them. Second Peter chapter one um, says they spoke, prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophets in the Old Testament are forth tellers. They're proclaiming what God revealed to them. They're telling the people about God's will, his ways. Uh, often they're calling God's people to repent. So we can think of the so-called major and minor prophets, men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, um, Obadiah, Micah, Jonah. Jonah, not a great prophet. <laughs> a... a begrudging, complaining prophet. Uh, Isaiah, 
proclaims the sinfulness of God's people. He proclaims God's future judgment. He prophesies about a coming Messiah. Uh, Moses also is considered a prophet. Um, and in Deuteronomy 8, 18, 15, uh, he says that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So Moses is a type of a future and greater prophet, and the Gospels often depict Jesus as a greater Moses. So think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on a mountain explaining the true meaning of the law. This is an image designed to take you back to Sinai, where Moses delivers the Ten Commandments to the people of God. So John 5 Uh, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Uh, people in the New Testament recognize Jesus as a prophet. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Um, Acts 3 Uh, 20 through 24, Peter, he actually cites this Deuteronomy passage and interprets um, the prophet who would come up after Moses to be Jesus. Um, as I said with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the chief interpreter of the law. He's the chief exegete of Scripture. Uh, John 1.18 Jesus says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And the literal translation would say, he has interpreted him. Jesus has interpreted the Father. He is a prophet because he truly reveals God. Um, also think of Jesus teaching in the synagogue. He taught with power. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And then he says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled. So Jesus sums up the role of prophet throughout the Old Testament. Jesus also is our high priest. Priests played an important role in the life of Israel from the beginning. In a sense, Adam is a type of priest king. Um, he is a vice regent. He is a co-ruler, mediating God's rule over creation. And priests are really their go-betweens. Think of a liaison. Priests do the work of mediation between two parties. And they perform tasks that establish the basis for communion with God. Um, priests in the Old Testament represent the people. They were from a certain tribe. They were from the Levites. The high priest offered sacrifices for sin annually on the Day of Atonement. And then there were a variety of other offerings and sacrifices that priests were responsible for. Uh, the New Testament book the go-to New Testament book to understand the priesthood is Hebrews. 
lays out in great detail the Levitical system of offerings and sacrifices, and the main idea is Jesus is better. And the Levitical system, the priestly system from the beginning was designed to reach its fulfillment in Christ. The sacrifices did not actually take away sins, but it provided atonement for the next year. But Jesus' blood was sufficient to actually provide once and for all cleansing from sin. His sacrifice is the once for all sacrifice. And it's sufficient uh, because he was the divine son. He was sinless. The Old Testament priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, but Jesus had no need to do that. And then Jesus is our king. So the people of Israel were supposed to trust God as their king and their ruler. Uh, But the problem is they're surrounded by all these pagan nations and the people desire power. They desire political power. So they look toward earthly things that will make them feel secure. God instituted judges which were more like warrior leaders from different tribes, and they dealt primarily with judicial and military matters. Uh, But eventually, the people of Israel go before Samuel, a prophet, and they demand a king. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And all the elders of Israel gather around, and they tell Samuel, they say, appoint for us a king, to judge us like all the other nations. Uh, But verse six says that this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. So Samuel prays and the Lord tells Samuel, give the people what they want. And God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God, they're rejecting me as their king. And God tells them, You want an earthly king, here's what's going to happen. He's going to oppress you, he's going to reign over you, and he's going to be full of corruption. Uh, But the people were persistent. So Saul, or Samuel, obeying God, gives the people their demands, and he installs Saul as king. And then Saul loses his mind. And the uh, the kingly line continues through David and Solomon, Um, The kingdom eventually splits. There's a civil war, um, and it it spirals out of control. Now, one of the king's responsibilities in the Old Testament was to read, to copy, and to obey Scripture. Uh, But the reading through the Old Testament cycles of kings, we see this uh, repeated failure to live up to that charge. But throughout Scripture, uh, there's a promise that there will be a future king who will rule over Israel forever. And this will be a king that will rule in righteousness and holiness, unlike the earthly kings. And this is known as the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David 
He promises that a faithful king would come from his line and would sit on the throne forever. So this is found in 2 Samuel 7. Also, another important passage to think about Jesus as king is Psalm 110. Uh, This is a royal psalm that prophesies Jesus' kingly rule. It speaks of a figure who would sit at God's right hand, who would triumph over his enemies, sin and death. He would be a priest forever. And this king would have power to judge the nations and he would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus refers to this psalm um, when he's telling the religious leaders that the son of David must be more than a mere physical descendant of David. He must be Lord, uh, which Jesus understands to be himself. And this, uh, when Jesus cites this psalm, it's found in Matthew 22, uh, but it's another great example of Jesus' belief in the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, because when he says, he says, David wrote Psalm 110 in the Spirit. So all of Scripture is God-breathed from the breath, from the Spirit of God. Jesus now is exalted at the Father's right hand. He will return in glory as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So all of the offices, prophet, priest, and king, are summed up into the person of the Son. So now let's look a little more closely at the atonement. What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? The atonement is the death of Jesus and what it accomplished. And just like the image of God, the church has never had a council, the church never came to a consensus on the nature of the atonement. Or what is the image? The church hasn't officially said what it is. The atonement, there are various Um, articulations of what Jesus' death accomplished. Um, I'm not going to rehearse all of them. Allison briefly touches on on some of the major views. There's a view um, called recapitulation that comes from Irenaeus in the early first few centuries. There's a ransom to Satan theory where God um, pays the ransom to Satan Satisfaction theory, uh, penal substitution, moral influence, um, Christ as victor. There are all these different theories. Um, But the best analogy to think about the atonement is to think about a diamond that has all these different facets. And so all of those theories speak about aspects of the atonement that are true. Um, But the table of the diamond... Uh, the main flat surface is, I think, penal substitution. So it's not as if there aren't 
true aspects of the other theories, but I think this is at the heart of what the atonement accomplishes, penal substitution. So let's define what we mean by this. Um, Allison lists seven affirmations of what penal substitutionary atonement entails. And the first is that uh, atonement is grounded in God's holiness. So as the holy and just God, he must punish sin. Uh, Sin necessitates atonement. Second, he says atonement is objective. It's not a subjective work. So it was objectively accomplished on the cross. It doesn't subjectively happen uh, when it's applied to you in faith. The effects of the atonement are applied to us, and they affect us subjectively, but that's not the same thing as saying that the atonement is purely a subjective reality. It happened objectively uh, in space and time when Jesus was crucified. A third point is that the, the penalty for sin must be paid in full. And we can't pay for our own sins. Uh, the penalty resulting from sin is death. Only God has the power uh, who can pay for the penalty for sin to rescue sinful people from the effects of sin. So that's why Jesus had to become incarnate to be our faithful representative. Jesus pays our penalty for our sin by dying on the cross in our place, and he thereby accomplishes the atonement. So scripture repeatedly speaks of Christ's death as being for us or for our sake. And that's substitutionary language. So here's where I like William Lane Craig. He has a book um, called The Atonement and the Death of Christ. And it's a rich biblical defense of penal substitutionary atonement. And I think he convincingly demonstrates that uh, the Old Testament sacrificial rituals were substitutionary in nature. So the priest would lay, before he slaughters the lamb, he would lay his hand on the lamb's head, and that act communicated a transference of sins from the people to the lamb. And so that lamb is substitutionary. And scripture understands Jesus to be our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. We can think about a few different aspects of Jesus' death. It is propitiatory, so that means it appeases God's wrath. Jesus' death emphasizes the justice of God. God meets out justice by condemning sin in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus. 
Christ's death is also expiatory. This means that he removes our guilt. It expiates our guilt. It removes the penalty of experiencing spiritual death. Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sin. Jesus' death redeems us. So the imagery here is slavery to sin. And scripture uses the imagery of liberation from slavery to talk about the atonement. We were enslaved to the power of sin. Jesus' death liberates us from sin's enslaving power. Jesus gives his life as a ransom. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ. can also speak of reconciliation. Christ's death brings peace between God and man. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. And now we have our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience. We can now approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have restored relationship with God. And then Christ's death is victory over death, hell, and the grave. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hebrews 2.15 or 14 says that he has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So there are various passages. I think all of those elements are there in Christ as our substitute. Um, If you're interested in reading, you know, what's a good defense of penal substitution? Anybody else hearing that? Yeah, sorry. Uh, J.I. Packer. Um... He wrote a a 1973 essay called The Logic of Substitutionary Atonement, and it remains the best concise defense of that view. Um, Penal substitutionary atonement has fallen on hard times. Contemporary scholars are running from it like the plague, It's often caricatured as God being a cosmic psychopath who delights in punishment and suffering. Uh, Critics say it paints God as an angry, masochistic, evil, vengeful God. Uh, Critics have problems with it. They think it um, sanctions divine violence, divine child abuse. Uh, privileges God's justice over his love. They'll say penal substitutionary atonement is just a modern invention influenced by the West's emphasis on uh, legal and judicial philosophy. 
Now, we haven't experienced this in our churches, uh, thankfully, but in the academy, uh, penal substitutionary atonement is under attack. And that would be an understatement. Um, If you went to an academic conference, not at an evangelical academic conference, you would likely be considered a laughing stock. Um, I think that in our cultural context, um, I think we see how this is a problem um, as our culture is increasingly becoming um, trauma-sensitive. And I don't, I don't mean to discount that. I plan to write my dissertation on trauma and theology, so I'm not saying trauma is unimportant. Um, but the sensitivity to violence, the sensitivity to abuse, I think is definitely in the background behind this widespread abandonment of this doctrine. Um, so, what do we do with this? Well, first, I would say this shouldn't scare us. We don't despair at this, and it's important to realize that none of those criticisms are new. Um, the doctrine's been around for a really old to- a long time, um, and a lot of those criticisms are just recycled criticisms. Um, in your notes, I posted a link to an article on Nine Marks by Stephen Wellham, and he's written an article, um, it's pretty brief, and it's a defense of penal substitutionary atonement, and it's called Four Questions, um, for um, the atonement. So in that little article, he argues only when we view Christ's death as penal and substitutionary do we actually understand the depths and the horror of our sin and the depths and comfort of God's love. And then he lists four important questions that help explain the logic of penal substitution. And the first question that he asks is, who is God? And he argues that if we don't get our doctrine of God right, then we're not gonna get the cross right. So all of these critics who are saying that, you know, penal substitution is really about this you know, psychotic, vengeful, violent God, ultimately they have a deficient doctrine of God because we know God is not a wrathful, psychotic, crazy God. He is goodness. So it's, it starts with the deficient doctrine of God. If we're deficient in our understanding of who he is, is, that'll lead to confusion down the road. God's righteousness, his law, and holiness is not external to him. It's who he is. So he can't overlook sin. If he wants to justify sinners, then he's free to do that according to his sovereign freedom and grace. 
but he's going to do that according to his own internal standard of righteousness. And so the cross is where God's justice and mercy meet. And the second question is who is man? I think some of the criticisms of penal substitution don't take seriously uh, the grave effects of sin. And so if we get our doctrine of humanity wrong, if we get our doctrine of sin wrong, then we're gonna misunderstand the nature of the atonement. And I think we have far too deficient an understanding of human sinfulness today. Now that, yeah, that's just a caricature. Like to, to have a, a strong view of human sin does not say or does not mean that I think human beings are worthless or in, unvalued. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Invaluable. Um, that's a false dichotomy. So we are born in a state of original sin. Adam acts as our representative. Adam and Eve's sin plunges humanity into this state of sin resulting in death. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So we need to be aware of the sinfulness of sin. The third question is, how can God justify sinners? So modern people want the benefits of forgiveness without the necessity of judgment. I remember being in China, talking to another Muslim friend, and this was truly the analogy he used. He used the analogy of scales, and his understanding of his hope for salvation was the set of scales of good deeds outweighing bad deeds. And he said he just hopes at the end of his life that he would have more good deeds than bad. And, you know, I'm like, okay, if you're honest with yourself, how can you seriously think that you would have more good deeds than bad deeds if you're being honest? But that became very clear to me. That view doesn't actually solve the problem of God's justice. So if God just accepts his good deeds... Um, but he doesn't do anything with the bad, how could God be considered just and good? It just gets a pass. So if God is going to justify sinners, he must execute judgment. And God doesn't punish his son on the cross, he punishes sin in the flesh of his son. So there's a difference. The fourth question is who is Jesus? Jesus is God the Son in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. The divine person of the Son united in two natures human and divine. He is the God-man. And so we have to think about Christ's work on the cross in connection with our understanding of the Trinity. The Son 
takes on the role of being our redeemer. The father designs his plan of salvation. He plans to send the son to carry out his mission. And then the spirit applies the work of Christ to us. Jesus assumes a human nature to be our representative. And as God, he can then mediate between God and man to be our high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. So, you know, this is the gospel that through Christ's substitutionary obedient life and substitutionary death, the love of God is revealed to us. He makes us righteous through faith. We place our faith in him uh, and his work, and then we're cleansed and freed from our sin. And then we are given the gift. His righteousness is imputed or given to us, and we experience union with him. And we will then forever enjoy relationship with him. So that's been a doctrine of the Son of God. We've talked about who Jesus is, the person of the Son, fully God, fully man, and then we've discussed his work. He is our prophet, priest, and king, and he has died for us in our place, making atonement for our sin. So... Um, we have a few minutes left, but I'd love to take any questions or if you have questions about the paper or anything like that, I can take them too.